Welcome to the 34 Welcome to Make Matriarchy Great Again. And welcome, everyone, to the 34 Circe Salon. This is the Make Matriarchy Great Again podcast. I am Sean Marlon Newcomb, and we're back and better than ever. We're Absolutely. Coming, coming back for part two. Hello, Don Sam Alden. Hello, Sean Marlon Newcomb, and welcome back to uh, the third member of our band, Vicki Noble. Welcome, Vicki, who is muted right now and needs to unmute. Sorry. <laughs> okay. We have sound effects this time, Vicky, so you can fill in the space. <clears throat> welcome back, Vicky, and also welcome back for this, the part, uh, the second part of our conversation with Joan Marler. Hi, yeah. everybody. <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> We're very excited to have you back and to pick up where we left off with our conversation. Um, Vicky, if you want to reintroduce Joan, and then we're going to pass it over to Joan to sort of um, give us a brief uh, uh, summary of what we talked about last time and then launch us forward into part two. Sounds wonderful. Joan Marler is the founder of the Archaeomythology Institute that everybody should know about and the International Journal of Archaeomythology. Both of these are part of the legacy of Maria Gimbutas, whom we have been following and honoring from almost the beginning of our, our podcast years ago. So we're really, really happy to have Joan on to talk about Maria and her work and the ongoing work that we all do in in honor of what she started. Um, Joan was so close to Maria toward the end of her life, was her editor and really became her protege and has, has carried on a lot of her work uh, for the last two decades um, or even longer. Maria died in uh, 1994. So Joan has been uh, carrying on her work uh, in a, just a very wonderful way for all this time. And I've known Joan even before that from the women's spirituality movement and the work that happened in the Bay Area and the uh, program that was instituted at CIIS, the California Institute for in Integral Studies, um, a place where some of the uh, independent work in in what Maria Gimbutas began as a serious archaeologist. A lot of us in the women's spirituality movement, the goddess movement, have, uh, have been interested in carrying on that work without formally being uh, inside of archaeological uh, disciplines. Um, so, so Joan and I have been compatriots for a long time, and we had the great pleasure at the end of Maria's life of going to her home in Topanga Canyon in Southern California and spending time with her, all kinds of wonderful time with her. But particularly, we, we had the honor, the privilege of uh, 
priestessing her at the end of her life and uh, being there uh, as she was dying. And so I'm very grateful for that and for our longtime contact. And I'm just thrilled that, that Joan has uh, started coming on the podcast and, and sharing some of her work so eloquently with us. I hope you all go back and listen to part one and then uh, enjoy this uh, segment, part two, with Joan Marler. Welcome, Joan. Hi, glad to be here again. <clears throat> um, yeah, for those of you who haven't heard the, the first um, section of this pod podcast, or uh, part one, I should say, I just want to give a, a little bit of an introduction to Maria. Um, Maria Gimbutas was born and raised in Lithuania, and um, she comes from a very remarkable family uh, that were part of the intelligentsia, uh, Lithuanian intelligentsia, that rose actually not out of the elite level of culture, but out of the farming culture, people who were closest to the land, who realized that um, their basic uh, freedoms and their, their sense of who they were um, and everything that they um, they honored and and needed for cultural sustainability um, was in their language and was in their their cultural lineage, and so they realized that they had to be scholars and they had to be connected to um, what the what the old people were saying and what was encoded in the in the ancient language itself because Lithuanian is uh, an Indo-European language that is closest to Sanskrit. And she, as a child, I mean, she, she was amazed by that and really wanted to understand why. Why is there that connection? And so she began by being a, a, a very avid student of linguistics to, to find that out. Always there were these um, questions that she had that she had to go about finding the answer to. And that one question after another after another propelled her throughout her life. Um, when she was growing up, um, she realized because her whole family was devoted, uh, tenaciously devoted to um, preserving the ancient Lithuanian culture. And so she did as well. Um, going out and uh, collecting folk songs and folk stories and um, realizing that they encoded a consciousness. And that consciousness had to do with a, a, a deep interrelationship with the life of the living world. And that that was, their, that was their grounding and that everything they valued came from that. And they also need to, needed to understand their own history and so uh, historical studies and, and uh, being as, as literate as possible and all of those things were interconnected with a sense of kinship with the living world. And so this is something that um, is not, uh, we have had to discover that in our own lives here because it's not something that our whole culture is embracing. But there, at least her whole family and her extended family and everyone involved in Lithuanian intelligentsia at the time that she was a child and even now um, understood that. And so um, when she became a, a student, I already told you, a, a student in, in, um, in 
uh, university. She started out by studying linguistics. She studied also um, literature. And then she decided she needed to study um, archaeology because she was basically tapped by, by the, the finest archaeologists they had at the time. The, um, Jonas Puznas was her professor, who was the first um, academically trained, very uh, deeply trained archaeologist. And he was trying to find students who would, who would uh, basically be the, the archaeologist for the next generation. And so that was something that was very remarkable. And he was interdisciplinary. He encouraged her propensity for to be interdisciplinary. And so she was. And the professors she studied with were those that who were the finest scholars in their field, the fields of folklore, the fields of philosophy, the fields of linguistics, and a number of other fields that... that anthropology and so on. Um, so she started out by being uh, studying in, in Kaunas, uh, which was a provisional capital of Lithuania. And then she was able to return to Vilnius, where she was born, to study at uh, Vilnius University that was finally released from Polish occupation. There was a lot, there's a big, big, big story of, of all the contending powers that were trying to get their hands on Lithuania because it was so strategically located as it still is now. And so um, she earned her master's in, um, at Vilnius University before leaving with her husband and small daughter um, as refugees in 1944. Um, and that was, that's a huge, huge st uh, story in itself. So at the end of the war, she got her doctorate um, in uh, archaeology, again, in, in an interdisciplinary way at the University of uh, Tübingen. And that was at that time in the French occupation zone after the war. And then they waited for several years before they were able to um, come to the United States and in 1949, and when she came to the United States, um, she just, she was planning always to to find a university where she would be associated. And um, since her husband got a job in Boston, she decided that she would go to Harvard. She presented herself there with her newly published uh, um, dissertation, uh, which had to do with Lithuanian burial customs. And um, they basically looked her up and down and realized that here she was, this young woman, this brilliant young woman coming from Eastern Europe, who knew more about Eastern European archaeology and cultural history than anyone that they had there. And so they said, oh, sure, okay, you can work here, you can do research here. You, Since you're a polyglot and knew many, many, many European languages, you can do, uh, you can um you uh, work with other of the translate you can do translations yes she could do the yeah. translations which she did and she gave herself um she gave her own self assignments for projects that she wanted to do and the first one was to basically uh since she knew all of these uh, ancient languages to study 
all of the material that was available, that was known about archaeological activities through the last hundred years, um, from the mid-19th century to the mid-20th century, and then to basically to write a book about um, early um, Eastern European archaeology, which she did. Now, if you can imagine, these were these were documents that were uh, archaeological reports. They were in a lot of different uh, languages, and but nobody else had gone through them all. No one else had done what she had done. And this was something quite, quite remarkable. And she, of course, she wrote in English um, for this book. And um, it was called The Prehistory of Eastern Europe. And in that book, she did something quite remarkable which was during the time that she was working on this text, she um, began to notice something very, very specific about the archeological um, systems that she was, uh, that were being excavated in the steppe regions of, of the area of, that is equivalent now to South Russia. And so this is actually where we left off my beginning to, Say something about the about the Indo-European culture and the and the collision, what she called the collision of cultures between uh, the old European societies that she was writing about in the prehistory and the old and the uh, Indo-European societies. So, Joan, uh, Joan, if I could just uh, jump in with a couple of questions before we get to that, because this is obviously the meat of everything. But yes. just out of curiosity, I don't uh, if you know, um, just in, in terms of her bio, Lithuanian culture. So there was this this uh, push and constant need to preserve uh, the culture uh, among the Lithuanians because of these different occupations. Do you know that uh, for Maria when she left, what her thoughts were? about how the Lithuanian culture had been preserved under the Soviet occupation in particular. I was just wondering if, because a lot of that, particularly post-war, it was um, oftentimes the great powers were trying to erase other things and make uh, unify one central kind of culture, let's say under communism. What did that happen to Lithuanians? Yeah, so um, let me just step back a little bit and say that I had already mentioned that her family and her extended family and the people that that were most important for them were the intelligentsia, Lithuanian intelligentsia. They arose out of the from the period of time, but in, in the nineteenth century, uh, when Lithuanian was under Tsarist regime. So the Russians were always trying to basically erase the culture systems of the people that uh, were being controlled. And so it wasn't just the Lithuanians who were trying to basically hold on to their, to their deep culture, but, but all the other culture groups too, who were struggling against the Russians to try to, um, you know, to keep their sense of identity and not to just be, become Russians and become Russified. Uh, and also not to lose their language because the the Russians uh, were trying to destroy their ability to to write and and to uh, be educated in Lithuanian. And during the 19th century, um, 
people realized that there was something that was encoded in the language itself that was extremely unique because in the development of Lithuanian language and culture uh, for hundreds of years, there was a separation between the Lithuanians and the other groups around, the Slavs and, and others, because of the the, the places that they lived. They lived in inaccessible swamps. They lived in, in deep forests. They lived in places where the trade routes were not coming through them. So they were able to preserve their ancient ways. And, and also, um, if I could interrupt, Joan, they yes. were also the last European country to be Christianized. Absolutely. <laughs> and even in the 14th century, when... Um, when it was said, okay, so the the Christianization began there. It took a very long time for the for people to actually um, be Christianized. Let's say it was Christianization by the sword, which is a typical way that that Christianization happened throughout the world. Uh, and people really wanted to keep their own ways, and they were pagan ways, and they had already fought for hundreds of years against the Christianization that was foisted upon them. Yeah you know, by the Christian missionaries coming coming through. So so this was a long, long, long struggle. And uh, it uh, people were tenacious about the fact that their, their um, relationship with culture and with the earth was deep and powerful. And it had to do with a sense of abiding kinship with the, all the living world. So, so I see that uh, Dawn has a question, but uh, just to one, and Dawn, apologies, just one thing to follow up and then uh, we'll circle back around because there's so much to chew on here. Um, the Christianization by the sword of trying to, trying to preserve their culture, I, I just want us to keep that in mind when we start talking about the Indo-European and the old Europe and kind of patterns of dominion of civilizations, because um, I think that's, that's an interesting context and I want to follow up with you. At that point, Joan, and, and ask if that also helped inform uh, Maria Gambutas' thinking about what happened in the past. Um, just putting that out there. I'm sorry, Don. Please. No, that was an excellent point, Sean, and and uh, I think it's really relevant to what we're talking about. But I just wanted to bring in, um, just remind our listeners of something that uh, Joan said in our part one episode about the archaeology. Um, is that Maria Gambutis made a very uh, a, a very specific point when she started going on her own excavations, which is that they should keep everything that looked like it had been touched by human hands. That prior to that point, archaeology was more about finding the things that could be put into a museum, and everything else sort of you know went on the trash heap. So um, I I just wanted to make that point to our listeners that she was bringing to her digs um, a level of uh, thoroughness that she, perhaps she hadn't seen in all of those archaeological treatises that she read while she was at Harvard. Well, right, because she understood she had already had a tremendous background in the uh, in studying of not only the, the Indo-European um, cultures of the Bronze Age, which were very warlike, but also asking herself the fateful question of why is the earlier period so very, very different from what came later? 
and then to look at all the the figurines and to and to see that they meant something they they weren't just little curios there were thousands of them and they were all over uh the area that she later would call old europe um and that they seemed to be um speaking about um something that people held very dear to them that that must have been expressions of the sacred. That was her interpretation of the meaning of, of these. I mean, you can't know the stories that people told about the 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 figurines, but the, just the fact that she recognized that they had a a meaning in terms of how people interpreted their sense of the sacred. Yes, and who else but Maria could have done that? You know, in 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 terms of the establishment of archaeology in Britain and the U.S., uh, her, her it wasn't just her big brain and her amazing knowledge of archaeology and her education and everything, but it was also, her, you know, it's like she used both sides of her brain because she was also, or she used her brain and her heart, you know, to interpret and uh, she's been criticized for that, for being intuitive. But uh, in, in terms of the fullness of her uh, legacy, uh, it, it's, it's on account of that incredible, um, I don't know what to call it, the, the both sides of the brain, you know, the ability to synthesize. Yeah, and to, and to experience things, to experience as well as know. You know, mm. to learn and to study and to know lots of things and then to experience something that she grew up with. It was in her, it's in her genetics, it's in her, uh, her memory, it's in her, you know, her upbringing. It's fantastic. It made her the perfect person for the assignment. Nice. Let's, nice. let's talk about that. I just have one. This is a perfect starting point to go to go there, but I just I'll, I'll go crazy if I just don't get if I don't get this question off my head. How was Lithuanian and Sanskrit related? Because this, when you said that, it's so fascinating to me, and I don't want to take us off on a tangent. But is there a very quick sort of summary of why the two are so closely related? I mean, it just seems a very interesting phenomenon. Um, well, my understanding is it's because they had a pro- progenitor. Uh, that, that I'm, well, I mean, I mean, why are they more closely related than other of the Indo-European languages? Yeah. I'm not prepared right now to to give you the answer to that because I would want to have studied that question for this podcast to be able to. Oh, have no worries. I was just on. curious. Right. I was just curious. And and as as uh, Dawn is rightly pointing out to me, we have to cover more of our ground. But I couldn't help it, Dawn. I had to know. Um, yeah. All right, we'll, we'll find out. So, so let's talk about old Europe. Let's talk about how this, as Vicky talked about, her ability to both intellectualize and also emotion, maybe instinct, Vicky, or maybe um, unconscious awareness, be able to put these things together. What was this this uh, breakthrough that she made, Joan? Uh, let me just say one thing that in in terms of your question before you go to go there, that linguistic linguists understand these things. I mean, people who study uh, Indo-European linguistics uh, have tracked the similarities between um, Sanskrit words and Lithuanian words, and there is a direct relationship. And of course, we were talking about the Indus Valley. We're talking about 
uh, in India. We're talking about you know very very oh. widely spread areas. Um, exactly. And- I have an idea. We're, we're, we interviewed uh, Miriam Robbins Dexter yesterday about some of these same things, and we're going to have a second. Uh, episode with her. And so, um, Sean, let's ask her. Yes, please. Let's, I, I just, for whatever reason, it's just triggered some real fiery need to know why that, no, why there, just... that wide gap is so connected. But again, as uh, I, there's a, there's a little angel on my shoulder saying we have to move on. It's an angel named Dawn. <laughs> and, so, uh, <laughs> and we promised we were going to look yeah. at the collision of cultures here and the Indo-Europeanization. Let's get to it. Dawn, do you want to drive us through that one? So, uh, Maria, we talked about how we sort of left off at the, as Maria's uh, excavations are, and she's beginning to write about uh, the end of old Europe and the Indo-Europeanization, quote unquote, um, of these regions and what we see uh, on this podcast we've talked about as sort of the beginning of patriarchy and how did the world, uh, the scholarly world react to that when she started to write about her findings? Right. So that the contrast between old Europe and the Indo-Europeanization that took place later, um, it's important for us to step back and, and review what was meant by old Europe? Because the area that she named old Europe um, is an area that was really has been considered like a backwater. You know, it's like people have not even if you if you look at most archaeology books or most you know until just recently, of course, there's a lot more interest in this in the area of southeastern Europe and central Europe, um, but. Before that, it was like, well, who knows about that? I mean, it's, no, nobody even mentions it. You know, is, is civil, civilization is said to have begun in, in uh, Mesopotamia, um, particularly, you know, in uh, in that area between the rivers, <laughs> Mesopotamia, and uh, the Fertile Crescent, and and Europe was sort of, you know, like who cares about Europe? I mean, so anyway, there's a big story about that, you know, that erasure. Um, or not just basic non-recognition, but what she saw is that there was a, a what she identified as the first civilization of Europe, in the sense that uh, people had a very well-developed culture system. They um, basically, I should just say that um, she called old Europe. She coined the term Old Europe in recognition of the essential similarities that were shared by the earliest Neolithic farming communities that developed throughout Southeastern and Central Europe from the 7th to the 4th millennia BCE. So although these each Neolithic society, these are uh, food-producing societies, had its own name, individual style, and recognizable features, Uh, Maria used the overarching term Old Europe to signify that these highly developed agricultural societies were non-Indo-European, linked by commonalities of symbolism, religion, economy, social structure, and technological development with no weapons created for warfare. So they were diametrically opposed to what came later. 
Joan, could you explain for the listener what you mean by Indo-European yes. and non-Indo-European? Yes, it's very, very important. Um, first of all, um, Old European, Indo-European is a linguistic term having to do with the fact, basically, that there is a connection between the uh, languages spoken in the, the Indus Valley and that whole part of the world where India is the, in, in Asia and in Europe. So it was a huge area in which the languages that developed there uh, were related. So that was, it's basically a, a linguistic term to acknowledge that. But in terms of, of more, what it means is that they were warlike. <laughs> they were uh, the symbolism of, of their sense of deity was not to bond with the earth as much as to um, be in relationship to the sky, because these people were nomadic pastoralists and they were they were on the move. Um, they had animals that had to go from one pasture to another in the steppe region, this long, long steppe region that uh, from Eastern Europe all the way uh, through into um, into far uh, into Asia. So, so that's a huge area, and there was a lot of movement of these of these people, and so wherever they went, it wasn't the uh, bonding with a with a certain um, landscape, but it was the sense of uh, the sky, the 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 um, sun, the moon, the stars, and these were the major deities. And could, could, any, anyone, can we say, sorry, sorry, yeah. can we say who they were, where they were first, uh, and then where they spread from, just to give a context for the for the listener. So they, the, as you explained, what what they were like. So were these one group of people or multiple groups of people? Were they united? You know, what is the starting point for them? Just so there's a context. For yeah. So for about 150 years or so, uh, or even more, linguists were trying to find the homeland of the Indo-Europeans. Where did they? There was a lot of dialogue, a lot, a lot of uh, arguments, and so on around it. But um, what Maria's idea, uh, based upon her research, uh, was that they developed in the steppe region. Uh, north of the Black Sea in the in the Caspian Pontic Caspian region uh, and the the area of the Volga basin mm-hmm. and that that whole area there and then they made their outmigrations not only into Europe but also into Asia further into Asia and then down into the Indus Valley so um, these were people then um, who spread widely. They domesticated the horse. They had animals. They had cattle. They um, were able to move uh, and make their living, basically. This was an economic choice of, of how to live um, based upon how they could actually live in the steppe because the steppe region was this long region, as I mentioned before, uh, of grasslands that were um, basically, there's, it, you, you, you can't really do a year-round um, agriculture there. Maybe some, um, a little bit of agriculture in certain regions that were inter, uh, in, in which there were some rivers coming through and, uh, there, and it was possible to do some agriculture. But mostly uh, people had to move with their animals. 
And so that's the, the basic idea of where, where it came from. And that's, I think, the latest thinking about the homeland structure. But when I start talking about her development of her Kurgan hypothesis, I'll say a little bit more about that. Um, so basically what she, what she found was that old Europe was, it was a very rich society and it was able to develop um, in a continuous basis because people were not moving so much, although they did expand and they did move uh, throughout um, uh, from, from the Balkan Peninsula all the way up into the Balkan region and then um, following the following the Danube uh, uh, basin uh, into, into Eastern Europe, I mean, excuse me, into, into Central Europe. But people bonded with the, with the natural world, with the living world. And so they were able to, uh, since they weren't spending their energies fighting with each other, they were expending their energies being uh, cooperative with each other. And, and, and um, they had the, had time to mature. They had time to develop their art. They had time to develop their abilities to express what was most important for them, which is which was reflected in their material culture. And um, basically, at its fluorescence in the fifth millennium BCE, the old Europeans constructed large towns with well-built, spacious houses and temples with multiple rooms and stories. Their skilled artisans produced large quantities of weavings and elegant ceramics with advanced kiln techniques, technologies for making thin-walled, high-fired, and exquisitely decorated ritual vessels. And these did not, <laughs> this is not what the, the Indo-European tribes were doing. Um, they had they had pottery, but it, they were, it was crude in relationship to this. And Maria pointed out the, the old European ceramics were so refined that their artistry would not be matched by later societies for thousands of years. Joan, could you say just a little bit about, so we talked, um, uh, you pointed out where the Indo-Europeans came from and where they spread. Where, who were the old Europeans? Where were they from? And how were in any other way, what are the contrasts between them, the old Europeans, and the Indo-Europeans, uh, you know, whether linguistic or location or, you know, source of where they came from? But just maybe if you can, for the listener, make that distinction. Sure. So the people who who brought uh, Neolithic technologies into Europe were from Anatolia, were from from Turkey, present day Turkey. And they they developed agriculture uh, into its, the area of what's called the Fertile Crescent, in areas where there was the um, the the wild progenitor of of what uh, was later developed into the 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 grains, the various kinds of grains that were that were um, brought into Europe and uh, grown as uh, as important uh, crops. And so they brought what was already developed in, in Anatolia and they transplanted that, plus animals uh, that were domesticated as well. And they transplanted them into first the, the region of Thessaly, which was a very rich area in what is now uh, Greece. 
and they were they had to adapt to the new new ecology and that showed in itself how they were very sensitive to the requirements of of living in a new place and adapting and responding to what the 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 seeds that they brought the animals that they brought and everything to the new place and so not just imposing their ideas on a new location but actually being being in a responsive relationship to it so um they brought also with them the tradition of making female figurines and then they developed uh, also, of course, in Europe, there were already f- female figurines that were used for thousands of years for the Paleolithic period. So, you know, they didn't just make it up out of whole cloth. There, there were these uh, traditions that were extremely old. Um, who, who, who were those people then? So these are the Anatolia, they come out of Ana- present day, which is present day Turkey, but Anatolia was a, a, a regional uh, so they come out of Anatolia and they go into well, this region of around the Black Sea. Uh, as you talk about their artistic skills, but you also now said that there were figurines much earlier. Was this a different population, a related population? Who were these other uh, figurine makers that were in Europe already? Well, this is something that it's, uh, we can thank the ancient DNA research, which is showing uh, in a very fine-grained way, um, the, you know the the hunter-gatherers that were here, or we could say gatherer-hunters, um, and what was their genetics, and where were they, and how did they move through the landscape, and then the farmers. It's very clear genetics coming from from Anatolia, and uh, to what extent they did and did not interrelate with the uh, with the hunter-gatherers of the area. And it's, it's a complex mix, you know. I mean, if you go in and start reading some of the uh, recent um, genetic material, it's really uh, quite phenomenal to be able to look inside, like with X-ray vision, and to, to be able to see who is related to who and um, what people brought with them that had a certain kind of... Uh, uh, expression, but what was similar also about it, and what was similar is in terms of the in terms of the the farming population and the hunter gatherer populations is this relationship to the living world. So there are, there are multiple layers that we there have multiple layers, yes. going on there. So can we talk about how what's what? And also, what was the so I'm sorry, Peggy, please. Also, the, their relationship to a mother figure, or a great goddess figure, or a female ancestral matrix figure of some kind—that really c- comes down to us from the Paleolithic and from the gatherer-hunter people, and then the Anatolians. I mean, Anatolia means the land of the mothers, and so they brought the goddess to Europe, their version, but she was already there. That's right. And so that's it's one of the most important things, I think, to see that they already shared that. It's why probably why they didn't murder each other. You know, they actually got along and lived side by side. Right, exactly. That, that long, long, long tradition of venerating the female. Yes. Yeah. Well, 
for both of you, uh, both Vicky and Joan, then what is, how did Maria Gambutas figure in all of these things that we know about these cultures? What was her contribution to this? Well, she named it. Well, I, and I, you, I think you know why I asked, because there's, of late, there is often a way to, that people have overlooked her contribution. So if we could, for the listener, let's, let's kind of note, start noting, how did Maria come up with this? What did she, what was she the sort of the pioneer about with these things? And what were her significant discoveries in these areas? Well, once again, it goes back to her early training and her growing up in, in Lithuania, where the, the pagan traditions were still alive and well. And they were fading because of the influence of Christianity, but they weren't completely gone. And in the in the villages, she saw uh, farmers who would kiss the earth every morning and evening. She saw that um, the the, um, the the deities representing different aspects of the living world um, were honored, and that there was no um, celebration. Uh, seasonal celebration without uh, recognizing the, the powers of the of the world, of the powers of the of the earth herself as a deity, you know, yeah. as is a potency, and um, all of the creatures, all of the living, all aspects of the living world were considered sacred. So this is something that goes back. I mean, it's chronicled in terms of what was written by by the missionaries who were trying to who were trying to subdue these these what were what they called the stubborn pagans and to try to get them from you know I mean it's like they thought, they they worshipped the frogs and the and the snakes and the you know all part of the living world instead of the father god and they don't recognize the father god in heaven you know as though that shows how primitive these people were so that there but there was this sense that was very 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 deep reflected in their language and reflected in all of their material culture talking about the lithuanians right now um that maria experienced um and she saw how how it mattered what people believed and it and how it informed them in terms of their activities and that and that every part of their culture was part of a fabric a living fabric of culture and so when she started finding uh, material uh, by by studying the the early societies she realized that these were not just to be understood as little fragments that didn't weren't interconnected at all but that they were interconnected and they were part of a, a whole fabric of, of culture that originally was filled in with those parts that were not so obvious at this point now, but it didn't mean that they, they didn't exist before. And so she made certain assumptions based upon her own experience from growing up in Lithuania and seeing how people lived and how they worshipped uh, in terms of their the pagan levels that that was still existed. So as a as a stubborn pagan myself, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to lead us back to where we left off about uh, the clash of cultures and the Indo-European um, entry into these um, into the sort of old Europe area. 
And, uh, and I think we were talking about that and I would love to hear more about that from you, Joan. Right. Okay. Um, and before I do that, I just wanted to say something I haven't said yet in this podcast. And that is that, um, since she used the word goddess, which is anathema to, I mean, it has no, no currency in, in the West, um, among non, non, uh, 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 indigenous peoples that is. Um, so that, um, you know, it was like, why is she, why is she calling these figures goddesses anyway? And she, she defined it over and over and over again, because she said, the goddess is a metaphor for all life in nature. So it's not to be seen, uh, that concept is not to be seen as a stagnant image or as a, uh, an idol that's being worshipped but as a metaphor for what lives, a metaphor for the source of life. And, you know, looking at the earth from outer space, from the, you know, the, the, the shock, initial shock of seeing the, the first photograph of the earth from, from the moon, you know, and seeing it uh, surrounded by the deep vastness of space. And here it is in all of her, her colors as an expression then of, of life coming forth from life, coming into being, going out of being, coming back into being in this, in this ascent, eternal dance of the cycles of life. And there it is as, an, as a visual expression. And we were able to see this for the first time. And so this is what she means by goddess. All right. So, um, when, when I have to then, in order to uh, begin to speak about what you asked me to, uh, uh, just now, Dawn, um, I have to go to the point where she came as a refugee to the United States. She already had her doctorate in archaeology. She already had, uh, she was already a polyglot, and she um, went to uh, Harvard. I think I already mentioned that. And she gave herself assignments to do projects, and and she from that she produced three mon, uh, really important monographs that were very very significant for other scholars. And the first of them was the uh, the prehistory of Eastern Europe. So um because she had given herself the the project of looking at 100 years of excavation reports from the middle of the 19th century through 1955 she began to see things that were described in those reports and that they spoke about the development of culture systems in the Volga region Volga basin uh the area of north of the black sea um, and she identified what she then called the development of the Kurgan culture. She had a way of giving names to things in order to identify their attributes so that um, we could keep track of them, so that they would have a, a certain meaning that would get lost otherwise. So she identified the development of the Kurgan culture in the Volgan region between 5000 and 4500 BCE and she used this blanket term which was named after their distinctive burial mounds uh, 
and the mounds were called Kurgan uh, as a Turkic loan word uh, into Russian. And so these people made these mounds, these burial mounds, and so she called them Kurgans. But it's important to understand, and she made this very clear, that the use of this term does not represent, and this is her quotation, does not represent the evolution of a single group of people, but rather several groups of steppe peoples, differing spatially and diachronically, sharing a common tradition. Now, this is something that archaeologists who were working in the area or who were studying the work of other archaeologists in the area noticed that they didn't use the word Kurgan. They used the local, the local words given to the excavations done by the archaeologists in different languages. Um, to, I mean, because they weren't looking at what was going on the other side of the hill or the other further down in the steppe. Uh, they were just naming the um, the peoples that they were um, excavating. And so you had a number of different names for peoples in different areas. And so she wasn't trying to say that they were all the same, but that they shared commonalities. And this is what she meant by Kurgan tradition or Kurgan culture, that they all shared those commonalities. And the, what were the commonalities? Well, she noticed that um, they used a specific type of grave, pit grave, covered with a, a, a Kurgan mound that was typical of burial monuments in the steppe region. And these burials are linked with evidence of mobility because people rode, rode horses um, and they moved their, their animals um, to eat, uh, to, to graze in different areas of the steppe. They all had weapons. They, uh, they glorified warfare. They had specific insignia that represented their identities. And um, they had symbols of elite dominance. And they all had that in common. And so, um, let's see here. And, and can I insert into that, Joan, that the... Uh, the wep the weapons and the and the symbols of elite dominance that you're describing were found mainly buried with the males with individual males i remember her writing that in the early essays in the kurgan book yes yes there were um, sometimes females buried in, but it was clear that they were, it was very, very rare for the, for the women to seem to have their own, their own power. So okay. they were relating to the, to the dominant male. So um, she was very interested in, in watching and seeing the changes that took place in the step. And she discerned from the excavation reports that she was studying how and where they began the, their first incursions into Neolithic Europe. So this is something very important. She didn't just make this up. She was seeing, ah, they moved from here to here to here. And following the emergence of the Kurgan burials, basically. And uh, if, if people are interested in a, a kind of more specialized uh, expression of what Gimbutas saw in uh, over over time, 
in regard to the to what Joan is describing, I would recommend an anthology that is called The Kurgan Culture and the Indo-Europeanization of Europe. Um, essays, it, it's essays from, I think, uh, from the 1950s all the way to right before her death in 1994. And she just kept refining uh, these, this amazing thing that she had seen that no one else had seen. And so you can look at the early essays and, you know, there, there are things that change over time about the work, obviously, because uh, the dating gets more refined and so on. But basically, she started, she saw this in the 1950s, and it was an absolute illuminated vision of what happened, this collision of cultures. And she named it, and she continued to think about it and, and research it and write about it until she died. Yes. I thank you for, for mentioning that anthology. And I was actually going to mention it myself because it's very important. Yeah. And um, this this is is a collection, a very, very useful, important co- collection of of the writings of, of Maria Gambitis from the 50s, as you said, all the way to the, the uh, just before she passed away. And it's edited by Miriam Robbins Dexter and Carlene Jones Bly. And this is such an important text, and it is published by the um, the Indo. It's published by the Journal of Indo-European Studies, um, which is a is basically oh, it's actually the the um, uh, organization is called the Institute for the Study of Man in uh, Washington D.C., and this is the uh, a monograph eighteen um, that's from the Journal of Indo-European Studies monograph series. And the Journal of Indo-European Studies uh, was um, basically co-founded by Maria and other uh, of her colleagues, and it still goes today. And it's it's and she f- wanted she founded it uh, co-founded it because she wanted to have a publication that would not would be for linguists, but also for people who were working in other disciplines. And she wanted them to be able to read each other's work. And even if they didn't agree, but at least to have a place where there could be discussion and there could be furthering of scholarship so that people wouldn't remain in their own silos. And so that was something that was very, very important to her. So I highly recommend it. I think you can still buy copies. If you just go into the Journal of Indo-European Studies, uh, just Google it and you will find it there and then look for monograph 18. That's um, a very, very noble concept. Excuse me? I'm just saying it's a very noble concept of wanting people to have disagreement but be able to discuss. And I think it's something we've lost a lot in modern culture. So that's a wonderful that her mind was oriented that way. It was because, and she didn't seem to mind when people were criticizing her as long as it wasn't just, you know, uh, something that was knee jerk, that they were actually thinking about what she was, what she was doing, and then coming up with a different point of view. And then there could be a discussion, but there's actually been very little of that, um, unfortunately. Nobody nobody is interdisciplinary. Nobody's interdisciplinary enough to even, to, you know, to even get into a discussion like that. Her, her interdisciplinary mind was so profound. Right. I think people are tribal too now. It's this kind of, 
unwillingness to hear the other and say, okay, well, what are you, what's your information? Here's my information. And let's see whether, and through our intellectual journey, whether we can find out whose information, whose hypothesis actually seems to have weight. So I think it's an, it's an amazing, it certainly comes from a, an intellectual culture, like you've described, Joan, that uh -huh. she grew up in. Yes. Yeah, well, I mean, there, as I mentioned, you know, there's been a long, long tradition within linguistics of, of, of just a lot of, you know, discussion and, and disagreements, agreements and disagreements, and trying to work out uh, questions that, that people have had about, uh, about the Indo-Europeans and who they are and where they came from. And, and, and there has been, you know, findings of the difference between the remnants of non-Indo-European languages that um, still exist. In fact, Harold Harman has done a lot of work on looking at the non-Indo-European uh, words that express um, people living in, in specific ecosystems, um, that express... Uh, hints at the uh, uh, culture systems, uh, the social structure, uh, and so on. Um, so it's, it's quite fascinating then. Uh, the new research that's being done, and, and Harold Harmon has been doing a lot of it. Uh, so I, I encourage you to, you know, people to look up Harold Harmon and to, to see the work that he's, he's produced so many books and articles about this because he's just he's just inflamed and he's alive with inspiration for Maria's work and for for the meaning of old Europe and the Indo-Europeanization uh, and what that what that means. So I just wanted to get back then to uh, I want to emphasize I really want to underline the importance of this work that she did way back in in the 1950s when she was at Harvard. And that she didn't just make up this idea that the people from the steppes came into Europe. She saw the evidence for it, and she described that. And she, she says here, uh, another quotation from Maria, um, that there are several types of evidence that allow us to trace the movements of the Kurgans westward, the appearance of Kurgan tombs, the abandonment of old European settlements, and some of these settlements were, were a thousand years or more uh, in maturity, uh, mature development, and the disruption of long-lasting traditions in pottery and architecture. So there was a there once they started coming in, um, and she described that coming in over a two thousand year period, that there were repercussions. And she saw the evidence of those repercussions in the material evidence. So now to talk about what you had mentioned, Sean, about and also Don and and Vicky, um, the collision of cultures. Um, this is a collision of cultures between two diametric culture systems that that happened over a two thousand year period, and. The Indo-Europeanization of old Europe. Wow, and what is that? It's like the, the people that came in from the steppes with their weapons, with their elite dominance, um, 
they were coming into an area where people had no weapons for war. And they had no tradition of fighting, of being uh, territorial. And they didn't know how to handle these people that were coming in who were basically colonizing them and also bringing their, their languages and imposing their languages on them as well. So the Indo-Europeanization um, was not simply the imposition of, of the language, this new language from the steppe, but also everything that the, the Indo-European societies meant. In fact, the earliest level was, was called Proto-Indo-European. Um, so the Proto-Indo-Europeans were the ones that came in. And then later on, the proto part, you can dismiss with that because it was uh, intertwined with the um, people, indigenous peoples or the peoples that they were colonizing. Uh, but they, were, they became Indo-Europeanized. So Maria considered the collision of these two cultures absolutely essential to understand in order to have any sense of understanding the development of uh, in European cultures after that point. And that we are all, everyone of European origin has inherited those two levels. The oldest Indo-European level, the oldest old European level, and then the Indo-European level. And so once we understand the difference between the two levels, we can start to notice within ourselves, you know, what would correspond to the, the old European and what, you know, the warlike propensity of, of uh, our Western society is certainly the Indo-European level. And the relative positions of, uh, of the genders in society that... This egalitarian, um, old European, as Maria Gambutis called it, old European civilization, egalitarian, lots of goddess figurines that were placed in significant places in the dwellings, uh, relationship with, with the land upon which they had settled. And then the Kurgans appear with the European, with the Indo-Europeans, and it's as uh, I believe uh, Vicky has said, Maria said, weapons, weapons, weapons. Right. And uh, the the sort of chieftain um, burials start to appear, and so there's a very significant difference in the in the daily lives of of the people who were colonized by these, these Indo-European waves. Right. And I'm glad you brought up the, the, um, I'm sure I talked about that in the early broadcast about, uh, podcast about the, um, the balanced societies, the old Europeans, uh, old European society as balanced and as egalitarian and that there was no struggle between the male and female. There's no indication that they were vying for supremacy with each other. They were working for the common good. They had to be because otherwise they would not have been able to be so um, sustainable throughout this long era. Um, and um, and to, to have developed a maturity, developed a, a sense of being able to focus their energies on making art for one thing and for celebration and and, and so on. Um, so 
the collision of getting back to the collision of cultures and the end of Europeanization, um, Maria recognized that the sequential arrival of these peoples from the steppes, um, that it's important to recognize this 2000 year period because and during that 2000 year period, um, it wasn't that there was this wave coming over and, and, the old Europeans were there and then the steppe people came in and then they just controlled everything and and it was just like a simple uh, replacement. No, it wasn't so simple. Um, and she said it didn't happen in, uh, the same way in different regions because um, when she said that there were three uh, incursions, basic incursions of steppe people into, into East Central Europe and into... Uh, all of Europe eventually, um, they had effects in these different regions in different ways. The yeah. first, oh, sorry, <laughs> I just want to give some dates to yeah. this too, yes. so that the the first incursion um, was uh, dated to between forty four and forty two hundred BCE, and the second incursion was between thirty six hundred and to thirty four hundred BCE. And then the last one was around 3000 to 2800 BCE. And that's the one that the uh, most of the, um, the genetic investigations are focused on. These are the Yamnaya people, or Maria used the word Yamna for them. Uh, and they were, it was the biggest one uh, coming in and the most, you know, the changes were the most powerful. And interestingly, the, the fact that now there's ancient DNA evidence because the whole um, genome has been deciphered, it's just incredible that, that uh, this, is, this has taken place and it's just opened up huge areas of, of knowledge and further investigation. It's basically, you can see um, in terms of who were the who who represent which genetics represent the farmers, the old Europeans? Which genetics represent the people coming in from the steppes? Which genetics represent the the uh, hunter gatherers and and how they fit into the picture? An interesting thing about the hunter gatherers, it's found that a lot of times they coexisted with the farmers, but they didn't necessarily uh, blend with them because of some kind of taboo or something. You know, they they would trade with each other, or they would be in proximity with each other. But it didn't necessarily mean that they were always disappearing into the old European mix mixture. Um, but you could trace them, and you can see them. Um, one of the things that's found, which I found, it's totally phenomenal, and it does really show that Maria was right in so many ways that there was a hybridization between the people coming in and the, um, the, the old Europeans and the, the hybridization can be, can be seen in terms of the genetics people then holding the genetics of both, both the lineages. I, and, loved, I loved that part of the civilization of the goddess. I loved that book so much because it was like a mystery story unfolding, and her her language, uh, her even earlier than that in the Kurgan book, her language is so beautiful. She talked about catastrophic dislocations, 
displacements, amalgamations, and all the work in the uh, civilization of the goddess has to do with the hybridizations and how they uh, how they manage to keep on going to move move out of the way but now they're merged in some way partly uh, it was just uh, it was absolutely phenomenal yes and she talked about it as a kind of a marble cake of of influences people mixing but not mixing so well that they just fused with each other right and sometimes people just would would leave would have to flee and they would be found uh, living in inaccessible areas. So they wanted to be away from being attacked. Yes. And she had, she had a chart in the Kurgan book. I, I didn't write down the page, but the chart shows the way the Kurgans came in. And then there are arrows pointing to the different cultures that they immediately affected. Um, and then the arrows keep going, uh, showing the hybridizations then that took place and became what looked like almost new cultures in the archaeological record. But uh, when you do the genetic work, there they are. And she, she saw it in, even in the archaeology. You know, she, she did things like showed the pottery from, uh, from, uh, from I think, uh, the Vinci culture maybe, and then how it was pushed, how they were pushed and became... Uh, the Langal culture and the Baden, I don't even remember where that was, but the pottery, you can see it's like the same pots, different culture, same pots. And so a lot of things like that. Right. And well, I mean, she, she had a little bit of an attitude about the comparison between the old European, the elegant, thin wire, thin-walled, high-fired, uh, old European uh, ceramic tradition and the crude pottery uh, from from the step you know she said these people have no sense of art she was a bit of so she was a bit of a pottery snob she was right she was and she just because it reflected their their sense of of values their sense of of culture and that they didn't seem to care i mean they didn't seem well in order to make pottery in order to have that development uh even technological development not to mention the the uh, artistic development you can't be moving all around all the time you have to be right. in one place right. and you have to be able to draw from what's available around you or trade for it or whatever but but to be able to to try one thing try another and to refine your abilities until finally the the kilns that were created um in the the in the fluorescent the time of the the fifth millennium uh bc BC, the that were really they really worked it out, and it's it's really it's incredible. And it's because of those pottery kilns that probably had a lot to do with the women that uh, metallurgy became possible, and the and the smithcraft developed from that. And they were they were so good at that by the time of the first wave of invasions. Well, not only that, they were the the old Europeans with uh, developed metallurgy. They were the first ones to do it, yeah. but they didn't do it in order to try to make weapons. They did it, you know. They they made uh, they, they made material for for adorning the bodies. They 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 created uh, um, images uh, that expressed their their 
their their ritual uh, materials, and it all it had to do again with their their sense of values, their sense of the sacred, their sense of you know they they weren't trying to bludgeon each other right. until later. Now, one of the things I wanted to say about that though is that once the disruption began, um, and people were realized that they were being invaded. And they had no way, they didn't know how to respond. They had to learn how to respond. They had to try to protect themselves. You know, running away is one way, but also um, learning how, how to fight, to be resistant, and starting to act like the, the people that were uh, controlling them. So there was a shift that took place over time. Now, the 2,000 years that Maria talked about in terms of that transformation, 2,000 years is not an insignificant period of time for transformation to take place. Then that covered those three uh, major incursions into Europe. Um, and so there were all kinds of ways that the changes took place. Um, I do want to, to get back to the, to say something about the first incursion that took place. Uh, this is be, the between uh, 44 and 4200 BC. Um, Maria talks about the that first incursion resulted in the destruction of the great Karanovo, Gulmanitsa, Varna, Vincha, and Butmir cultures during the height of their cultural development. And I mean, the material culture that coming from, from these societies and to think that they were gone, they were collapsed, they were attacked. Or like, they like to say they abandoned them. <laughs> yeah, they just, oh, well, we're done with that. Yeah, oh, yeah, all by themselves, right? There are all kinds of explanations made in order to minimize the actual Reaction. In fact, the first two waves are just being ignored by archaeologists because the the genetic material has not focused on them as much as the third wave because because there's not as much material as the enormous amount of uh, material from. But it's they're there because the the Kurgan graves are there from the beginning. Yeah. So hopefully it will it will happen, um, but they're not recognizing it really. Um, things I noticed is they got very excited in the last decade about the so-called mega cities that developed in the QQ10 culture uh, north of the, uh, the of old Europe and part of old Europe. In present day Ukraine. In pre yes, thank you. No, and, and I just think, you know, what's happening to the archaeological sites there? Yes, oh, no, it's criminal. It's, you know, and the museums being, anyway, it's just... The, it, it's it's really heartbreaking, and and archaeologists being killed. I mean, I just heard a you know saw a uh, an email from from uh, a young lady who is an archaeologist who mentioned almost by passing that three of her comrades, her archaeological comrades, were killed. Oh, recently. My so you know, it's it's something that's very tragic that went on then. And it's going on now. And it seems to be coming from the same source, actually. Uh, one can, you know, kind of go down a rabbit hole with that one, but, but still. <laughs> well, uh, so can you talk a little bit, uh, Joan, about how um, 
how Maria's work was received in her time, because we've touched a little bit about how the DNA evidence that's come up just in recent decades has affected the interpretation of her work. But what was the inter- what was the response to her work when she started publishing these books and and speaking about her her theories? Well, the initial response to her work, but particularly those books that she that she produced when she was at, at uh, Harvard. Uh, was very positive. In fact, even David uh, David Anthony, who's who's become quite a, a critic of hers, um, even admitted that her um, the the books that she the monographs that she wrote then had a tremendous impact, a positive impact upon his own work and the work of his 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 uh, his other colleagues, other students at that time, because she was doing what the other uh, people weren't doing because she was able to cross linguistic and and political boundaries. And she these was, are the oh, works these are the works about the Indo-Europeans you're talking about. Well, her first her first monograph was the prehistory of Eastern Europe. So it but it was in that that she she traced the development and the movement of of the of the Kurgan tribes into Europe in that book. And then later she wrote about the Bronze Age, focused specifically about the Bronze Age. And nobody else had had done that because in the Bronze Age book, she did the same thing as she did in the in the first monograph of the uh, prehistory of Eastern Europe, which was to look at um, the, the first hundred years of excavations done in, in Eastern Europe. Right. And to basically to uh, because, and because she could read all the different languages that were involved in those excavation reports, and then to report on them and to and to make them accessible to people, because they it was during the it was during the um, during the the Cold War, people had very rarely could travel, and she uh, that uh, after after she was at Harvard, she went to. Uh, as, a, as a professor to UCLA, in which she was able to travel, I think I, I talked about this in the first podcast. Um, she was able to get permission, high, very high level permission, to travel across the across the the boundaries of the um, bronze. I mean, excuse me, of the Cold War, um, and to be able to go in and to meet with colleagues and to give presentations and to hear their presentations and to ask questions of them and to see. To make to travel uh, all through the 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 area uh, that was forbidden to most other people, and to see the the material that was in the the museums, and to really educate herself about what was going on there. And it was during this period of time, not only when she was a student in Eastern Europe, but also when she was traveling as an exchange scholar, um, that she was able to really zero in on the differences between the earlier period, the Neolithic period or that she named Old Europe, and then the later Bronze Age, which was warring, the warfare period. And um, basically to try to answer for herself why they were so different. Joe, Seems I have very, a question oh, sorry. for you. Yeah. Um, I wonder about, you know, archaeology developed at a certain point, I think in the middle of the 20th century, a very strong anti-diffusion doctrine. And I'm wondering, I'm just flashing, that maybe that had 
had something to do with their response to Maria and her the invaders. You know, they started making fun of her for saying that there were invasions, and they they acted like, oh, that's such a simple, uh, simplistic uh, justification for what happened. You know. And then they started all that material in the last 50 years of the 20th century. There was so much of an effort to, to say that the elites uh, arose from within and took over the culture, you know. Right. One scholar, one archaeologist even said, well, we, we, we can't see evidence of, of that internal development, but we know it was there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it had to have been there. In other words, you and they were really pissed off that she would define old Europe as a civilization, yes. and said it was a true civilization in the in the best meaning of the word. Uh-huh. People weren't fighting with each other. You know, they knew how to live. They knew how to make art. You know, they, you know, and it's all there in the material culture. And of course, that was poo pooed because oh yeah, she's just making that up. Or she's yeah yeah, she's interpreting it that way. Well, she is interpreting it that way. Um, but anyway, um, um, one of the you're absolutely right in what you've brought up, um, Vicky, about the rejection of the rejection of uh, migration as an explanation for cultural change. Um, now, this didn't used to be a problem, but after the Second World War, when there was a it was a real uh, effort to try to make archaeology a, a, a science, it just as um, physics is a science or as uh, other hard sciences are the science. I mean, then they, they were very reluctant to do anything that couldn't be weighed or measured or uh, that they couldn't, you know, create a formula for basically proving it's, it's true. And in order to do that, they had to kind of ignore the things that were anomalous to what it was they were trying to prove, um, this, you know, to try to be real scientists and so on. And it was during that time that they rejected the idea of, of change happening from migration. It became then uh, kind of a truism, or it became really a, something. Doctrine. It became, it became a doctrine, right? And they were very happy to be able to just to kind of throw her out because say, well, I mean, she believes that change happened because of migration. So that disqualifies her. So we don't, don't even bother with her anymore. And she's talking about, she's using the G word, you know, talk about goddess. And, you know, we just like, oh, that was the final straw. You know, you just can't go that way. And so anyway, um, but. John, I just, I wanted to ask though, well, just the, was there a difference between how she was received in the Soviet world, in the Eastern Bloc world, as versus in Western archaeology? Because she's in a unique position when you point out that she could cross those boundaries. It's it's a fascinating because that's I think part of what allows her to synthesize these things, being able to see all these different areas. Did did she get a different reception, or was it the same kind of a pushback? Because there I think had- there was that barrier, right? Well, they had not, the, the Eastern European scholars had not been in direct touch with the, uh, with this, with the archaeologists of the, of the West. Mm-hmm. Now it's all, you know, <laughs> all the boundaries are open, you know, and, uh, and yeah, people are finding out that, uh, you know what's what's possible to be said and what's possible not to be said, but in general, she was received, uh, 
with with you know with enthusiasm, P- particularly when she went back several times to lecture in uh, Lithuania. I mean, that's a big story right there, because mm-hmm. the, the the Soviets had taken over, and uh, at the point when she was leaving, the the Soviets were moving in for the second time, and uh, they were trying to dis- destroy people's connection, you know, with their with their old culture. And Maria came to say, no, actually, you know, what you have in your own, the old culture, uh, the, the, is old, the old European culture that resides within, uh, within what seems to be on the, on the externally uh, Indo-European is really alive and well in the, uh, in the ancient culture here. And so they, it was a, it was really important for them, but getting back then to the, the first question or another, <laughs> an earlier question about um, how she was taken here. Initially when her books, her monographs were published, um, she, she became a big star. And even, even uh, as I mentioned, um, David Anthony um, was, Taken by it because it opened up new new vistas to him. He 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 realized from Maria's work and from her direct encouragement of him that um, he could do the work he wanted to do. Uh, this is you know after the end of the end of the uh, Cold War, uh, he could have the courage then to to go into uh, Eastern Europe and do his own excavations there too. But um, it's a, you know there's there's a lot of levels of of complication here. When she started writing her books about the goddess, the first one, um, the the publication of the Gods and Goddesses of Old Europe, um, you know since she had gods first in the title, it didn't seem to ruffle too many feathers because God is still first, and you know have to you know have to have God first. But when goddess was when the when the title changed to Goddesses and Gods of Old Europe, then the eyebrows were raised and the eye, eyes were rolling. And uh, what is she trying to do now? She's being political. Well, she wasn't trying to be political. She was trying to just be reflecting of the, at the fact that most of the uh, most of the images that can be discerned between male and female are mostly female. And so she that well, if she's calling them the male images gods, then the female images are goddesses. That's it, you know. So what's the problem? So from that time on, there was, uh, you know, there a, uh, a backlash began, which really didn't. I mean, there were some nasty things said and done, and you know, I mean, there was a great flourishing of. Oh my gosh! The more people who were embracing Maria's work and being incredibly excited by it, and these were, you know, mostly women and some men too, uh, but who were supposed so-called non-specialists uh, in terms of the archaeological field, um, and other people who were artists and musicians and and um, <laughs> pagans and people who were involved in in in, in a vibrant creative life who were. Incredibly, you know, inspired by this material that they hadn't seen before, because again, because of the, uh, no one had really brought it out into the into the public, into the West. Uh, well, I'm sure that the the fact that there was a uh, the closure of the of the political boundaries just uh, made it impossible. But here she did. Here she brought it forth, and it was a revelation. So in the in in this 
tremendous acceptance and love and and excitement around the reception of her work, uh, her colleagues really found that just uh, they couldn't they couldn't accept that because if you are inspired in that way, you're not being a real scholar, <laughs> you know. In that, or if you're as though she was doing it just for people to praise her and that was not her motivation she told me many times that she had no idea that her work would be of interest to anyone outside of the realm of archaeology it took her it was a complete surprise for her and the the women's spirituality movement which was quite large by that time actually took shape uh, around her work and and that was a lot of she was lifted up in, in a certain way um, by the goddess movement and the resonance. And that was so surprising to her. Completely surprising. And she wasn't doing it in order to, to, to make that happen. Right. You know? And she told me too, when she started uh, working with, with uh, the, the figurines, you know, she said, at first, I didn't even know what I was looking at. What are these? What are these sculptures? What are, you know, here again is another question. What are these sculptures? And then to start seeing the the comparisons between different uh, sculptural patterns, different styles from one old European society to the next, there would be similarities. Yes. And as you, I think you pointed out, uh, Vicky, that she saw patterns and she recognized that the patterns were meaningful. And not just to uh, just to say, well, I know what that means, but to inquire, what do you mean? Yes. And to spend decades <laughs> investigating what that could possibly mean. And, and to have an interdisciplinary point of view was absolutely necessary because she realized that in order to study um, the, the beliefs and rituals of, of people from very, very early times, you could not just use archaeology. You could not just use one or or just linguistics or just, uh, you know, you had to really bring them together. And her intention, her, her stated intention was to expand the boundaries of her own discipline. And you bring them together and it corroborates. She, I remember she's talked about when when one discipline corroborated the findings of another completely different discipline, then she knew she was on the right track. Yes, and if different disciplines did not, then then you had to return to it and say, well, why not? You know, really, and to, to recalibrate or to, you know, and, and not just to assume that just because you, that it's a feel-good interpretation that that's the, the right one that you always are are looking at the various disciplines that are being utilized and saying what do these different disciplines say in terms of the an interpretation of this material yes and in so doing she basically erased the atomization the incredible uh, uh, non-synthesis that had been going on in archaeology the incredible specialization to the point of you know, not seeing the forest for the trees. Right. Yeah. Well, one of the good things, one of the things that I'd like to to say is that the fact that she was 
it was such an it became such an irritant to traditional archaeologists who, first of all, didn't want to be associated with her without fearing that they were going to be their work would be considered uh, suspect. Uh, and even David Anthony said to me once that he was a, that people were accusing him of being in Gimpetus camp. And I think that that is a sensitivity that, that he had that he's still trying to get over because he's trying to differentiate himself at the same time that acknowledging, uh, yes, yes, she did these incredible things and she was a phenomenal scholar and, and, and uh, I owe so much to her and I disagree with her. Um, yeah, that's fine. But um, he t- also told a story that, um, in which he said he was at a he was at a conference and he happened to be placed uh, right next to her at the speaker's table, which made him very nervous because his presentation was going to be basically saying how he disagreed with her. So um, she gave her presentation and then he gave his presentation. Um, and he was terrified, he said, that, that, that she was going to be angry with him. But afterwards, she turned, uh, he was going to say, I'm terribly sorry, I hope I didn't make you angry. But she threw her arms around him, gave him kisses on both cheeks and said, I am so glad that somebody is continuing the work. Oh, gosh, that's wonderful. That's it amazing. so great that's because, um, and then he went on to say that, um, there were very, very few people who would have who had the depth and breadth and worked on such a large canvas that she did and was able to uh, not be not that she accepted different points of view. Yeah. Even though she didn't have to always agree with them, but at least people were thinking and and trying to develop their own way of of uh, of doing their research. And so, uh, you know, I mean. That's really something to remember about her. I think that's she... really important to emphasize, uh, Joan, that because I think in con- the contemporary world, we have an issue today of not being willing to have discussions with people who differ from us. And because the only way you, you advance information and knowledge is by having discourse and, and this interplay of different outlooks and different points of view. So I think she, that's one of, uh, to hear you talk about that aspect of her, which I didn't know as much about, I think is something that really should be lauded. And I think it's, it speaks to why she was able to make such breakthroughs. I'm sorry, Dawn, you, you want, I, I think I may have stepped on you as you were jumping in. No, no, I was just going to, I was just going to say, um, has she, has she become a pariah at this point? I mean, is she, is she essentially archaeological poison has it gotten that bad well uh i mean are there some people that probably will never want to read her work or um or or see the value of what she's doing and they're fighting the even even (laughs) even um david anthony is is you know is expressing his concern about the fact that that she's been considered vindicated by by uh a very, very, very important archaeologist, Colin Renfrew, um, who basically recognized that uh, because of the the findings of DNA, ancient DNA evidence, that she, her work has been vindicated. That her, her work, in terms of the 
the uh, Kurgan cultures coming into Europe and causing uh, causing the the transformation and the Indo-Europeanization. Yeah, there it is. And so, he, you know, if, as far as he was concerned, she was right. And and so the idea that suddenly she's back on the table when they had, you know, very uh, they'd thrown her off. You know, because of because of the because of ancient DNA evidence um, that is showing that she understood things without even having it. Yes, right. what she knew in the fifties is now becoming general knowledge in the archaeological world. Right, even though it's going more and more refined evidence is coming out. Great, it should come out, and that's. That's the way it should be. But the idea of hybridization is yeah. very important. Anyway, so there's so many ways. I don't know how much time we have left. <laughs> well, uh, well, how would you? We will certainly go wherever you'd like to uh, to bring us. But uh, what what would you like to, in terms of just rounding things out? Where do you, as Don asked, where do you see things now in terms of her legacy, and what would you like to leave listeners with about her legacy and about her work? Um, I'd like to, first of all, I'd like to just say something more about old Europe because, um, as I said earlier, uh, in terms of the, the collision of cultures that she said, said, it's really, really important for us to understand the collision of cultures and what is carried forward out of that in terms of the influence of subsequent European development. Okay. So the old European goddess as a metaphor for all life in nature and that relationship with the living world. Uh, and she talked about the themes of goddess symbolism as the mysteries of birth, death, and the renewal of life in the entire cosmos. And the, and the dynamic motion of old European art to represent the vitality of regeneration within the natural world and expressed by the symbolism on pottery as the swirling and twisting spirals, winding and coiling snakes, circles, uh, crescents, horns, sprouting seeds and shoots. And these kinds of things did not exist in the Indo-European material. However, in the uh, hybridization that took place, they were part then of the continuity of old European elements that were later. And she really emphasized the, that. And I, I, I would like to talk about the continuity of, of old European patterns into later cultural periods, because this is something that she really uh, underlined as incredibly important for us. Um, she was convinced that it's not possible to fully understand the European cultural development without recognizing the collision of cultures, and I've, I've already said that. Um, Indo-European language, beliefs, and social structure predominated after this transition, but they did not eradicate the deep roots of old European beliefs and customs everywhere. Old European religious patterns endured as substratum elements into later patriarchal periods, um, creating a strong undercurrent that influenced the development of Western civilization. Um, so one you know, obvious example is what continued in, in Crete, uh, in, in Minoan c culture, 
and that's something that's much more well known than uh, the old European, it's old Europe itself uh, up above. And I, I just wanted to bring out a an example from the work of of uh, Vicky Noble uh, as an expression of the continuity of old European elements into present time. Um, um, she co- contributed a, a marvelous article. Um, that I'd like you to talk about, Vicky, about the, um, the the ceremonies that you've you've photographed and you you wrote about in terms of the um, um, continuity of old European uh, rituals. Would you would you talk about that? Oh, sure. I'd love to. Thank you. Um, I the piece that John's talking about it was a, a something I did as a little research project one spring. Uh, when I was uh, teaching a lot in in Italy, and somebody uh, brought me earlier, you know, earlier than my workshop, so that we could go to some spring festivals. It was early May, and near Beltane, near the pagan holiday of Beltane, and there were three festivals that I was able to visit uh, in that week that I was there in uh, in Abruzzo in the uh, oh, sort of south central, central southeast coastal area of Italy. <clears throat> and we went to the mountains and these little mountain villages that have festivals all the time. Uh, and the, the main one that I'll talk about, they were all very interesting in terms of old Europe and the, uh, the ongoing motifs, but the one that was really spectacular in the way was in a little town, a little mountain town. I think I can't at the moment come up with the, t- the name of it, but you can read the article, um, where every spring they have a festival where two little towns the, come together, all the people, the women in their dresses and their high heels and everybody in their normal, normal way of being, they all process out of the villages and toward each other and to a little shrine to the, uh, to the patron saint, the matron saint of the town, uh, Santa Gemma. And the festival's gone on for about five, 500 years. And Santa Gem- Gemma, St. Gemma, was, uh, uh, there's a whole story. I won't go into her story, actually. I'll just tell you the the kinds of things I noticed. So the maiden, someone, a, a, a young woman personifying the archetype of the maiden comes from the one village and the one who personifies the archetype of the mother comes from the, the other village and they come together in this really amazing reunion. The priests are ringing bells and blessing the whole thing. The the men in the community are in a marching band. The young women, oh, oh, and the women the night before would have normally done a collective baking project. We haven't talked today about the baking of bread in the, in the temple areas of old Europe, but it was a big thing, a really big thing, a core uh, issue. And so the baking of bread is a core part of this festival all these thousands of years later. And the women would collectively bake the bread all night long, the night before the festival. And then the young women 
the virgins would uh, would distribute the bread to the whole community at the time of the ritual. Um, this particular year, there had been an earthquake there, and the house of Santa Gemma was affected, and the church of Santa Gemma. They were both cracked, and uh, people couldn't go into them. Um, and so the the mother and the daughter meet up, and the whole community, both communities, are in this huge crowd watching this ritual process, and everybody's crying, and the and the mother and the daughter hug each other, and it's just terribly emotional. And if that isn't, you know, Demeter and Persephone returning in the spring, I don't know what. And the the bread baking and what else about that? Um, they the the actual personage of Santa Gemma was kept in a case. She looked like a wax figure, but she was the uncorrupted body of the saint, uh, Saint Gemma. Um, and she was on display in a, in a tent where we all went after the ritual. Um, and it was led by the priests <laughs> who did the mass. I mean, it was just an amazing amalgamation of ancient and modern and uh, you know the Catholic overlay on these uh, much more pagan and uh, old European substratum uh, motifs. It was phenomenal. It, it seems like that's that's amazing. It seems like in a culture we've talked about this, Vicky, that even in through the fabric, the cultural fabric of Europe is still the clash of these two civilizations. You know, the, you, like you say, you have this uh, overlay of, of uh, patriarchal constructs around, but you still have this continued cultural history of this goddess-centered, egalitarian movements, particularly around women, that you see throughout the history. Uh, that It's as if that, that old Europe culture is constantly struggling to assert itself. Yes, and there was a second festival that was a snake festival. Apparently, there are several, but the one that I went to uh, was very interesting. And and the the boys go out and gather the snakes at spring equinox, and the snakes are part of this festival, and then they're released uh, back into the woods uh, after the May festival. Um, but what was interesting about that was that the church for a while uh, tried to stop the celebration of that uh, of that festival and the people just wouldn't have it and so they had to reinstate it <laughs> and isn't there isn't there uh, some um, some biological truism about how when the snakes come out of hibernation, it's a signal for a certain type of planting is safe to do? Well, well that probably varies uh, with different uh, Different areas. localities, yeah. But, yeah. Um, but the, the snakes coming out of hibernation is connected um, in, in uh, Britain um, with Candlemas. Imbolc, the February 1st holiday, and then the next cross-quarter holiday is the Beltane holiday. So, uh, yeah, the, they're just so still in touch. Um, there's, there's a wonderful book written by Michael Dames 
about the pagan festivals in Britain um, and their connection to the, uh, the, the work of Gimbutas and Old Europe. Uh, it's called, uh, he, actually there were two books, um, the, the Silbury Treasure and the Avebury Cycle. The Avebury Cycle is the one that I especially appreciated in terms of the processions and the holidays and how he linked it all to the work of Kim Buddhist. Nice, nice. Well, Joan was, yeah, I was just going to say, Joan, is there anything else that you wanted to to add to before we close? Yeah, well, thank you. Um, thank you, Vicki, for describing that. And people can actually go up onto the website of the Institute of, Institute of Archaeomythology and look at uh, the, 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 the last uh, issue of, not the last last, but the, the, so far the last one, there will be others in the future, but uh, chapter, uh, issue 10, and it's in that one. Uh, oh, what's the I, website for that? So people can find um, it. It's archaeomythology.org, A-R-C-H-A-E-O mythology.org. And then look at all the other wonderful articles that are there as well. And you can sign up. Uh, it's it's basically open source, but all you have to do is sign up and give yourself a username and password, and you can have complete uh, access anytime you want uh, to to. And there's yeah, there's a lot that's there, and there will be more that's there. But um, I I just wanted to say I opened up the the book The Living Goddesses, which is uh, the book that the the manuscript that Maria was working on uh, be, right before she died, and then she gave it. Uh, her daughter, Javila, uh, basically invited Miriam Robbins Dexter to complete it. And I'm so glad that she did. I think that Miriam was a perfect person to do so, to complete the book and to supplement it. And the, the whole second section of the book has to do with the continuity of old European uh, symbolism into later cultural periods. And I just happened to open the, the book here uh, in in chapter six has to do with the matrilineal social structure as mirrored in religion and myth. And it, it talks about the mother kinship system that is expressed in the, um, basically in the material culture, uh, in the burials and in, in a, a lot of different, um, aspects of, of old Europe that, that Maria found. I can't go into it right now because we don't have much time left, but, um, you can you can look at this book, the the, the living goddesses, and I think that um, it is is still in print. And it talks about uh, the religious symbolism is permeated with symbols based on the life creating female body, and particularly mother daughter images are really very very important. And the goddess is nature itself, uh, pulsating with the seasons, bringing life in spring and death in winter. She also represents the continuity of life as a perpetual regenerator, creatrix, and nourisher. And I think that that's, to me, that that's what it, that was ex being expressed by this ritual that, uh, that um, Vicky was describing, that the whole entire culture, even though there was a, a Christian overlay to this, it did, not, it did not diminish or did not erase the, the deep, deep, deep old European uh, roots of it that that celebrated the mother daughter connection and the um, the, the necessity for regeneration, uh, and um, 
so yeah, and this is some you know the Christianity as it spread basically utilized the places where people were used to going to celebrate uh, to celebrate the earth to celebrate goddesses were were then chosen as places for the Christian churches so that people would go there because they didn't have access to the to the old shrines or the old uh, temples. Um, so that's a phenomenon that is that's happened in many many places. And the continuity of of elements that ab- are absorbed into into Christianity because people can relate to it, and it was necessary, and they needed. And this is all around the world too. There's such a rich tradition of this in in Central and South America with the Christianization there, and the very very deep 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 um, traditions of, of of goddess worship. Uh, and the connection with the with the land, and the connection with the living earth there, so it's it's really everywhere, and um, it's it's important to to look into into it and to recognize it. And one last thing I wanted to say, besides just just saying uh, that I so honor and appreciate this phenomenal scholar um, and friend of, of Maria Gimbutas and what she brought and. It's just, it's really stunning within one lifetime what she was able to achieve. And the last uh, 20 years of her life, I mean, she was struggling with cancer. And just the fact that she stayed alive and she's, she, by the force of her will, she continued her work um, is, is totally amazing. And she was so productive and encouraging of other scholars. Um, yes. But, yeah, but... Uh, also, it, Vicky, would you like to say something about that? Well, I've always said that her she had such a big brain and such a big heart that she uh, took all of us seriously, uh, which is very unusual in the academy for independent researchers to be taken seriously on any level, or artists and uh, you know musicians and and healers and so on. She she was interested in everybody and she and she was interested in our thoughts and our conclusions and our ways of uh, adapting some of her work into our personal lives she loved all of it we did a healing ritual with her uh, when i first met her in 1988 i invited her to my school to lie down and we would do some healing cuz she had had a recurrence of her cancer and uh, and she came and there were a dozen of us or so, and we sat around her, and we made it up as we went, you know, because it wasn't a, uh, it wasn't in form. Um, and we sang and chanted and put hands on her. And when she was, when we were done, she sat up and said in her wonderful Lithuanian voice, um, "Now I can die, because now I have met the goddess." <laughs> and we were just like, oh, that's amazing, <laughs> you know. Because for her, it's a living, a, a living presence of vitality. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, th- thank you for that, Vicky. And um, I, I did want to say that even though she, she was a uh, real irritant, uh, not she didn't mean to be, but she certainly wasn't going to back down on on anything that she she saw was was necessary to be said, although she did change her mind about certain things. If she saw the, um, if, if a, an argument was made that, that she could see was really more viable than what 
what she had in her mind before, then she would change it. I mean, she did that. But uh, about the about the goddess and about the relationship with the living earth and about the the um, the, the seasonal uh, the cycles and and that return that is so important to recognize that it's not just fertility that's that's the the central uh, focus of, of certainly is of the male gaze but of uh, not of what she saw was the old European focus but regeneration was the thing that kept the whole cycle going um, so she wouldn't back down from that and and she was for a long time the only archaeologist out there doing this work and and not budging with it. And so since she was such an irritant to, to archaeologists who just like, just thought, Oh my gosh, I want to be stay, stay separate from this because nobody's going to take me seriously. But what has happened, I find extremely interesting because the archaeologists themselves are starting to say, well, this whole idea that, that um, people's beliefs and rituals and, 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 and symbolism, it cannot be, cannot be uh, studied and, and understood um, is something that we, we can't let that stop us. We, we also have to do that work and uh, find our own interpretations of things. And it's like, well, yeah, you do. Go forth, do, do it. And so a whole, uh, now it's something that is not so unusual. In fact, it's normal for archaeologists to be interested in beliefs and symbolisms and rituals and, and, and those sorts of things that they thought was impossible within the discipline. So she's really uh, created uh, the opportunity for them to, to, to step into it themselves and to do their own work within that, within that sphere. And um, whether or not she, you know, uh, agree or not agree, the point is to do your work. And the younger students coming through are even being more uh, uh, adventurous, you might say, and uh, creative in terms of their willingness to, to step into that realm. Um, so I'm hoping that, that archaeomythology and, and being interdisciplinary in the way she presented it, which is so important, um, will be picked up because still yet it's not quite... It hasn't quite made it, you know, in terms of of the way people are utilizing an interdisciplinary approach. I mean, people have been interdisciplinary, but in the way that she uh, she expressed it, that uh, different different um, disciplines have have different techniques and they have different mindsets and. To, to get into, you know, to stand in the shoes of the different uh, disciplines and to see what is being understood in one discipline and, and another, and to even open those out so that they, there can be an intertwining and a, and a uh, relationship that the different um, disciplines can have and, and a richness that can be shared. And that's something that she wanted very, very much um, and I think that it's it's in the process of happening. Um, that's beautiful. That's a wonderful legacy. Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's a very uh, very deep legacy, basically, uh, that she has given. Well, that's also very generous of you, Joan, in terms of the work that's happening, and that's her generosity passed on to you. Her legacy. 
Yeah, well, I think that it's important not to polarize each other. I mean, we can disagree, but we don't have to demonize each other. Let's put it that way. Yes, um, absolutely. And to, to say there's always a possibility for finding common ground and to finding a ground that we can find, you know, we're both in this world together. So, uh, and, and uh, what can we give to each other rather than trying all, always to bludgeoning each other down if we don't agree? And, and that was never her way. No. It sounds like an old Europe way as opposed to a Yamnaya way. Yeah. <laughs> which is probably a good place to. <laughs> yeah. Close, a beautiful to, place to, to close. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, I want to thank you so much, Joan, for uh, joining us and talking with us and sharing this legacy and sharing its importance, its contemporary importance, its continuing, enduring legacy. So thank you very much, Joan. Oh, you're very welcome. And thank you, too. Thank you, Vicki. Uh, thank you, Don. Um, um, th- thank you, all- thank you, Sean. And I we so appreciate your work. And uh, yeah, it was an honor to be with you. Thank you so much. And thank you, Vicki, as always, yeah. for being our inspiration on this. And uh, Dawn, for being such a, a strong and stalwart uh, driving force in this. So thank you all. Let's give it, let's have our an applause. I have sound effects, so. So you're going to use, use them. them. Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. Okay, thank you all for listening. This has been the 34 Circe Salon, the Make Matriarchy Great Again podcast. My name is Sean Marlon Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. And um, I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Joan Marler as much as we did. Take care, everyone, and blessed be. Blessed be. Blessed be.